Welcome to Lit Health. I'm Tracy Granzik, your host and senior director of the Center for Healthcare Narratives at the MedStar Institute for Quality and Safety, along with editor-in-chief of Please See Me, an online literary magazine seeking to elevate the voices and health-related stories of vulnerable populations and those who care for them. On Lit Health, we'll be lighting a fire underneath the status quo of healthcare through interviews with authors, healthcare leaders, and policymakers, all working to create a healthcare environment that is equitable and transparent and that welcomes the needs of every patient, especially our vulnerable populations, including the mentally ill, people of color, women who feel they are still at risk in our current health system, the elderly, and anyone who feels bias or the isms affect their health or quality of life. Join us to stoke the fire. We want to hear the health-related stories from our listeners on both sides of the bed rail, the courtroom, and the aisle. Today on Lit Health, we are so very lucky to have patient advocate-turned-activist Armando Nahum with us. In 2006, Armando and his wife Victoria began their work in patient advocacy by establishing Safe Care Campaign after three members of his family became infected in three different hospitals in three different states in only 10 months' time, culminating with the death of his son, Josh, who was only 27 at the time. The Nahums have not only turned their family's tragedy into a positive tribute to Josh, but Armando's educational presentations inspire hospital administrations and frontline caregivers to remind, provoke, and motivate all who work in the continuum of care of their moral duty to prevent infection. The story of Safe Care Campaign's work has been featured on many national and local television and radio programs, including the CBS Evening News with Katie Couric, Fox News, CNN, The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer, and The Dr. Oz Show, as well as in numerous articles, journals, and publications, including Infection Control Today and CNN's The Empowered Patient, as well as The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and Infection Control. Armando is co-founder and president of Safe Care Campaign, an organization dedicated to the infection prevention in hospitals across the country, and currently sits on the CDC Council on Infection Prevention, the Georgia Hospital Association Advisory Board to Prevent Infection, the Georgia Department of Public Health, HAI Advisory Committee, and he is a member of the MedStar Health System Patient and Family Advisory Council for Quality and Safety. He has been a driving force in establishing patient and family advisory councils for quality and safety at each of the 10 MedStar Health hospitals, as well as countless of PFACs across the country through a partnership with Vizient. He is also the patient and family advisor for MedStar Health Sepsis System Initiative and director of the Center for Engaging Patients as Partners at the MedStar Institute for Quality and Safety. Additionally, he is a founding member of Patients for Patient Safety U.S., a network of people and organizations aligned with the World Health Organization and focused on making healthcare safer in the United States. In February of 2020, Armando was appointed to a four-year term as a voting member and a SGE or Special Government Employee to the Presidential Advisory Council for Combating Antibiotic-Resistant Bacteria. Wow, Armando. Impressive, impressive. I've known you a long time and looking at your bio, I don't know how you have time to do everything that you do. And I understand why you do it. So I'm looking forward to everybody here at Lit Health learning more about you and your passion for keeping all of us safe in healthcare. Armando, thanks so much for taking the time to be on this episode of Lit Health. 
Welcome, welcome. It's always good to see you and talk with you. Glad that you could be uh, sharing your expertise with our audience. So why don't you kick it off by just talking a little bit about why you became a patient advocate? I'd be glad to, Tracy, and thank you for having me here today. So my journey began in um, 2006 when three members of my family, my dad, my wife, Victoria, and our son, Josh, were all infected by their medical care in three different hospitals in three different states in 10 months' time, and then culminating with the death of our son. And so living here in Atlanta, Georgia, we uh, immediately contacted the CDC. They asked for an in-person meeting, and we have partnered with them ever since in infection prevention. They also recommended for us to get involved with healthcare institution by telling our story and to create change. That's interesting. CDC was a champion of putting your story forward. Yes, they were very much so. And how did you find your way to MedStar and, and all the groups that we've crossed paths and how did that come about? It's an interesting question because the meeting was supposed to be 45 minutes with the CDC ended up three hours. And I had the entire DHQP department, the Department of Quality and Safety over at the CDC. And I was silent for like the whole time. And then finally, one of their doctors, Dr. John Jernigan, said to me, Armando, you haven't said a word. Um, do you have any question for us? And I said, I have one question. I have brought with me a folder with five pictures of Josh. And I said, how many does it take? He said, how many what? I said, how many lives does it take before you do something about it? And his answer was, it was really interesting to me because he says, you know, we're just a federal agency that puts guidelines out. We don't go around shutting down hospitals. So I said, well, who can? And he pointed at me, says, you can. And so that was the recommendation of going out and telling our stories. But to tell you the truth, I was not ready, Tracy. And so Victoria kind of took the bull by the horns and she got on the phone and called everybody, including the president. And I mean, she called everybody. And every time she would end, I mean, she comes from the sales end of it in broadcasting, right? So she knows that, you know, you tell the story in 30 seconds, you know, you can make the pitch in 30 seconds. So she would always ask for a recommendation. Who should I call next? And she ended up talking to Don Berwick, who uh, then said, you know, it's ironic you were contacting me because I have a segment that I'm doing with Katie Couric at the CBS Evening News back then. And he says, may I use Josh's story? And we said, of course. That was on a Friday. And a Saturday morning, he took the time out of his family to call us and ask us if we had seen it, if we were okay with it. It was very, very nice of him to do so. That launched our campaign. And again, I still was not ready to go out. So Victoria kind of started, all of a sudden calls were coming in for us to go and speak. And so I would send Victoria out because I wasn't ready. And she was traveling all over the country. Three months into it, she was doing this big conference in Las Vegas. And it dawned on me that morning, wait a minute, I should be out there. It's my son, right? I should be out there. And then, of course, MedStar was looking for initiating the Patient Family Advisory Council system-wide. And that's how I got involved. So where did you cross paths with Marty Hatley? Where was that? Oh, that's an interesting story because with Marty Hatley, Victoria had met Marty during her travel. And she mentioned his name to me once or twice, but I never really paid that much attention because the first question I always asked is like, oh, did he lose his mother? Did he lose his father? To me, it was at that time, I was so entrenched into who lost what, right? Because I lost my son. And she would say, no, he, he didn't know. 
he's just a patient advocate, but he has a passion for that. And she says, yeah, he's actually an attorney. And I go, oh boy, okay. (laughs) And so when the partnership for patients was announced and, you know, we attended that meeting and all that, it just made me realize that, wait a minute, CMS or Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services is asking hospitals to engage with patients and families, but there are no tools. They're not telling them how to do it. They're just saying, go out and do it. Well, guess what? Hospitals and, you know, and doctors and nurses, they're not trained in doing that. And it was such a new thing for everybody. And they got heavily criticized, as you probably know, by some other institutions. But I saw an avenue there. And so Victoria and I kind of just dwelled on and we said, you know what? We need to create a guide from the patient perspective. And she says, you need to talk to Marty. I go, oh, Marty Hadley again. So at that time, we had a second home up in the mountains of Georgia that we would go on the weekend. And that's where we kind of hunkered down and developed the guide and contacted Marty, who then said to contact Tim McDonald. So Marty was on board right away because, of course, he's all about patient safety. And Tim was on board. And then, of course, now we have these tools and we have this program and we have no clients. So I said, well, how do we spread the word? And Tim says, well, I actually happen to know the vice president of quality and safety because he was my partner at the University of Chicago. He said, I'll put you in touch with him. That's how I met really Dave Mayer the first time, who then said, you know what? This sounds good. Let's do Georgetown. And then Georgetown, of course, was our first PFAC development. But all the other nine hospitals started knocking on the door, wondering why we left them behind and not included them. And so all of a sudden, we have 10 hospitals as clients when just two of us doing it, you know. So it was interesting. It took us about two years, but we did. We did them. I remember those days. You and Marty were like freaking freck. I remember with you trying to get, you know, in meetings with folks around the MedStar system. Just real quick for our listeners, do you want to describe what PFACs are? Sure. PFACs is an acronym for Patient and Family Advisory Council, which it's nothing new. They go way back in the 80s. And ironically enough, the first PFAC was established by children hospitals. There's always that tenderness that we have as humans towards children. It's a good reason why they were the first one. But what really took off was the World Health Organization with their PFAC, which Marty actually was involved. The idea behind it was strictly on patient experience. They were so engaged on the patient experience that safety and quality was not really in the forefront. We took that model and we further developed it into quality and safety, because I know that when I ask people out there, what is important to you when you go into a hospital? It's never about the colors of the walls or the menu, you know, what's on the menu today. It's always about, you know, I want to be kept safe, go back home to my family. I don't want to have an infection complication, no readmission, you know, I don't want to come back. And so we put Q&S at the end of the PFAC and developed these PFACs. And then through the Partnership for Patients, we were asked by Visient, which Metstel was part of Visient, to go out and start doing building PFACs under their collaborative. And so we did build them all over the country. Yeah. So that's a good note that, you know, patients and families should check to see if there's a PFACs at their Always. Level. Yeah, when they go in. Always. And try to get involved that way because, you know, obviously it's on a voluntary basis. Very, very few hospitals have a stipend, you know, for PFAC members, but it's 99.9% on a voluntary basis. Including the staff usually, right? Yes. They do not get paid extra. Absolutely. Well, that's a great segue into 
PFPS US and the World Health Organization in this big group and just this movement that you have been champion of since what when did that begin? Was it three years ago now or two? Two years ago. So over the last you know, 17 years that I've been a patient advocate, although now they call us patient activists. But patient advocates across the country, you know, they gained some momentum nationally, but we were all working in silos. You know, I was working in infection prevention and Marty was working for maybe a different area like policy and all that stuff. So we all had our own niche. But two years ago, the World Health Organization came out with what they called the Global Patient Safety Action Plan 2021-2030. It's a 10-year plan, which has a wonderful seven by five matrix that lists all of the domains of patient family engagement policies, basically all about patient safety, right? So Sue Sheridan, a nationally known patient advocate, good friend of Marty and I, also, you know, she decided, okay, I'm going to contact these people that I know, this group that I know, and invited us to her home in Boise, Idaho, brought us all together for a few days. And we kind of hunkered down and brainstormed, and we decided to create a chapter under the World Health Organization, Patients for Patient Safety. And of course, we added U.S. because there are others in other countries. Now, Canada has one as well. So we have 10 founding members, 60 champions, 30 strategic partners, and five what we call strategic collaborators. Why are they collaborators? Because they are federal agencies who are not allowed to say partners. So there's a little nuances there. But yeah, we have grown tremendously to the point where we now have reached finally President Biden's desk. That's exciting stuff. And I can say, you know, I'm definitely affiliated with the group, although not doing enough. And I hope to change that in the in the coming year here when I get a little bit of better handle on my schedule. But the passion around the different subgroups and like health equity and the different areas that you're focused on, medication errors and health IT. I don't know. Is there a health IT subgroup? Yes, there is. We did come up with initially with the five priorities, which actually got well incorporated. And I know we'll probably discuss this a little bit later, but it got incorporated into this wonderful report that we ended up giving President Biden. I mean, we can go there right now. I mean, that PCAS report is huge. And it has a lot of people within that organization and your influence. Sue Sheridan, you mentioned Sue was, you know, on the report. That was huge. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, Sue was chosen out of our group as, you know, obviously they're not going to have all of us involved in there because they brought the minds of science and technology, healthcare into this presidential advisory council for science and technology. You know, under the Affordable Care Act with President Obama, we had this partnership for patients that was to engage patients and families. And we saw great, it was not perfect by any stretch, but we saw some great results. I mean, you can't ignore 87,000 lives saved and 2.1 million fewer patient harm. And on top of that, $19.8 billion in, in savings, right? But we tend to go with whatever administration, and I don't want to get political here, but whatever administration happens to be today's flavor, we tend to go with that, where in my mind, it should be more of a federal domain so that it doesn't change with any particular administration. When that administration came, it kind of dismantled the whole idea of the partnership for patient. And even though we had done great work, and they also took us out of the World Health Organization. But then when the next administration came in, they really, really got patient safety. They know about healthcare and the problems that we have. And so 
under this PCAST, this Advisory Council for Science and Technology, we developed this report and recommendations to be presented. It was actually presented yesterday in person to President Biden. And his remarks, which I have, were quite encouraging. So I know he gets it. He also, his family has had harm. And, you know, we need to understand this. We asked for the moon, right? You probably read the report. We asked for the moon, but hopefully we'll get a signature on a few of them. And to your point, healthcare shouldn't be partisan, right? Everybody's affected by healthcare. Of and to lose that momentum until your family member is harmed or you lose someone you love because the system isn't set up for success, it's not personal. And then when it becomes personal, you definitely take a different approach and passion, not passion, but let's make space for this because it's silly to continue to do things that we can do better when it comes to caring for patients and the healthcare professionals in the system. Yeah. And the other thing that I would add to that, Tracy, is that as, as humans in our society, especially here in the U.S., I find that we have this tendency of thinking that, oh, that was never going to happen to me until it does. And of course, we know how many people are harmed in this country, anywhere from 200,000 to 400,000, depending on which website you are on. And, you know, you go out and you ask, and somebody out there will always say, especially in my case, because Josh ultimately died of sepsis. And I will say the word sepsis, and they, they look at me like, you know, what is that? Until I say blood poisoning, and then they go, oh, yeah, my uncle, my grandmother, my you know, somebody has been affected of that. So we tend to have this notion of like, it's never going to happen to me, but it does. And you need to be aware of that. That's a really good point. And I want to honor Josh's story and your loss, but I think there are places we can send people to where they can see it and hear it. And if you want to spend time talking about what happened, I'm happy to give you the space to do that, but I'll let you decide how you want to manage that. I talk about what happened to Josh all the time. It's sad, and it's something, obviously, I'll never get over. I mean, we think that we can be okay when we lose parent, because it's natural in life to lose the elderly first, right? It's just not natural to lose a child. And so people ask me all the time, why am I still working? And I tell them, I don't work for a living. I have to have a reason to put my head in my pillow at night so I can go to sleep. So Josh didn't die for nothing. And I... Because of the character that Josh was, he was known as a helper with his friends, right? He was the first one on the scene. Somebody had a flat tire, there's Josh. Somebody needed a ride, there's Josh. And he loved children. To honor him, is what better way is for me to help others not go through what we went through. That's why I do. you know, And that's why also, I, because of the work that I did with MedStar on, on sepsis, all of a sudden people think that I'm the guru on sepsis. So, you know... September is sepsis month, right? So I get asked to go all over the place to talk about sepsis. But I understand that it's not the medical part of sepsis. It's the perspective that we bring as patients and families view from a different lens, right? If you will, we see things that they don't see. Your influence has been strong with me. I mean, I my grandma was in the hospital. She's 99 years old when she passed and she had a UTI. She was, you know, not getting better, getting better. I'm like, she needs to be tested for sepsis. And I was thinking of you when I asked them to do that. Thank you for sharing that. Again, we will send people to your sites and stuff from the, from the podcast so they can get more information. Do you want to talk about what it was like 10 years ago to be a patient advocate versus now and how things have changed just for you personally, but the landscape and the focus too on patient safety or lack thereof? So in order for me to answer your question properly, I think I would have to go back further than 10 years. 
because when I started my journey, it was all about the impact of the story at that particular time, at that particular organization. And after a while, speaking all over the countries, you know, Canada, South America, I mean, just all over, I started asking myself the question, how long will my family story have an impact? Is it three months, six months? And then if I, of course, we have 6,000 hospitals in this, over 6,000 in this country, I can't possibly visit all of them. But some of them I did go back and find out they were back to square one. You know, what happened over here, right? And so I decided then to alter my presentation by first giving them that connection with the head and the heart, and then motivating them to engage with patients and families, just for better outcomes. I mean, we have documentation, we have published papers out there. We know that it works, right? Then when I, especially when I talk about my involvement with MedStar and the sepsis initiative that they, and all the progress that we made there, people are just left wanting to engage rather than, okay, it's another story. And especially when it came to hand hygiene, I would talk about hand hygiene so much and about infection prevention that they would send me like a month later, two months later, their graph showing me, oh, because of your talk, look how hand hygiene is now 98% compliance. And then I go back three months later and all of a sudden that graph you know, that is going down and I say, well, what happened? Of course, I called them, right? And they would say, oh, you know, our champion, so-so went on vacation the month of August. I said, you must be joking. So you relied the entire hand hygiene program on one person. You should walk, talk, eat, sleep, safety. I'm sorry, but you know, that's just the way I look at it. So, so the difference between 10 years ago and today, I think that storytelling is still extremely, extremely important. Stories are powerful, right? We all know that. They do motivate to an extent. The question that I always ask myself is for how long? I think you have to attach something to it. You know, it's really funny. I used to do the talk just about my family and there were no organization would say, well, we leave 10 minutes for Q&A. There is no Q&A. What are you going to say to somebody who lost his son? There's nothing except like they would form a line and give me their condolences. Now that I do the talking in two parts and I leave them motivated by, you know, okay, get out there and engage with patients and families like me, they all of a sudden have all kinds of questions. Well, tell me how I do that. Are there any tools that I have to do that? How do I set up a PFAC? So now there's openness for conversation, right? And so that's the difference between then and now. I love that, Armando. And I had always said, I mean, as someone who's a champion of narratives and using stories to change culture and behavior, I always said, when do people need that booster shot of story to keep them activated? What I've learned in the last 18 months, especially, is that people need tools and they need a plan. They need reminders. And then what is the best way to remind them? How do you continue to get the message out there where it's not ignored or, or just redundant and repetitive? Yeah, it's funny, Tracy. I have this guilt every time I do that when I start talking about patient and family engagement and you know building PFACs and how important it is to engage the patients and families in this work in quality and safety to just improve outcomes, right? I feel guilty because I mentioned the organization that Marty and I have that built PFACs. And I always say, look, this is not a commercial on, on our organization by any stretch, you know, but these are tools that are very important and we give them out for free. It's like, go to this website, get the tools. And if you need further help, then call us, you know, we'd be more than glad to help you out. But there's kind of that guilt 
trip that I go through, you know, it's just my thing. There should be no guilt. I get the conflict though, because it is helping people, but you know, your time is valuable. You're doing this instead of other things that you could be doing. And people need the help. They need the help in getting it kicked off and getting it embedded into the culture. For one champion to leave, that was a great example. And for the numbers to tank, hand hygiene, there's no reason that should happen. I mean, everybody there should be excited about it and understand why they should be excited about it. So super great point. You know, you've been there and done that. What advice would you give families who have a family member going in for a critical procedure, knowing what you know? Really, I could answer your question with one word, and that is education. The healthcare industry invests very little on patient education for patients and families. Why? Because they don't see the ROI, the the return on investment on it. What I tell them is that, look, if you have a patient and family advisory council in your organization, all you have to do is educate them. You're holding these meetings. So educate them on whatever you need to educate them on, obviously, quality and safety, because that's what we concentrate on. They can go back to their community and spread the word for you. That's free of charge. That's education. You can't put a price to it because they're affiliated with their you know, churches, synagogues, temples, um, uh, senior centers, right? I mean, in their communities. And obviously, their intention is that they want your hospital to be the best it can be because they live in that community. So they would go out and spread the word. We tested this with sepsis, and it became an incredible result to the point where we actually reduced the mortality rate by 35%. You know, that's a whole lot of numbers of people. But people were educated enough that they would have an infection, they had a fever, they would recognize those symptoms because they were educated by their peers. And, you know, it's easy to have somebody who's not medically trained educate the public at large versus somebody who is medically trained who may even talk at a higher level education, right? You need to be conversing at a fourth grade level in the community. And so having the community themselves from the PFAC going out, and sometimes they will bring a doctor or nurse with them. It was phenomenal. I wonder sometimes why we don't do this in every single aspect in our healthcare system. If you have a PFAC, you're not using it correctly unless they go out in the community and start educating. To me, education is at the forefront. That's a great push. The kind of the follow-up to that I have is, God forbid somebody is harmed in the system, what advice do you have for them if that happens? You know, it's a very good question because we tend to spend more time on after the fact than before the fact. Now, why do I talk about infection prevention rather than after the feet? I mean, it's like we spend too much time and, and money and after the facts, when we should spend it before. But if something happens, my advice going for procedures is always ask if your hospital has a CRP. That's a communication resolution program, you know, like, like Candor or like, you know, anything like that. You know, out on the West Coast, we have the insurance company Beta Healthcare that has a program called Heart, but it's pretty much like Candor. There's a website, hrq.gov. You type Candor and you get a whole slew of information in there. But always ask if that hospital has that CRP program because that means transparency right there. That means that they are going to tell you that something bad happened. They're not going to hide it. Plenty of resources out there. And you know, don't wait until after it has occurred because now, now you're, you're suffering. And it's not just the patient that it's affected where the harm is at. It's also the family. 
you know, a lot of organization tends to call the clinicians the second patient. I have an issue with that. The second patient is the family. Maybe the clinician will be the third, and I don't dispute that they get affected because they took an oath to save lives. And when something goes bad, obviously they take it personally. Some of them have committed suicide, as you and I know. Some of them have left the profession. So it's important to know before you go in for a procedure, do you have a CRP program? And if so, what does that entail? I like that. Do it before, not after. Again, you know, spend more time up front interviewing hospitals. It'll tell you something about the culture. And that Art Candor Toolkit is out there for anybody to use. Anybody. So what's your message then to healthcare leaders? And we've got a few minutes left here. I think we could probably wrap it up. You know, people like to compare the airline industry, the healthcare industry to the airline industry. And in reality, they couldn't be further apart in my mind. Because you know very well that when the plane goes down, the pilot goes down as well. Not so in healthcare. Where I think they could align is in the culture of safety. There could be an alignment there. The airline industry, you know, the nuclear industry, the automobile industry, and even Disney, they all have safety as a priority front and center. The eat, sleep, walk, talk, safety. We're not quite there in healthcare. We are preoccupied more so on the patient experience and we end up separating the safety aspect. It should all be under that umbrella. The patient experience has to encompass quality and safety. And the minute you separate them, that's when trouble starts. So my personal belief is it's because we do not have the proper accountability of federal agency like the National Transportation Board that we have in you know the airline industry, the, the FAA, um, we have problems in healthcare, but we're working on that. We're working on creating one. So my other message, which is tied to what I just talked about, is transparency, Tracy. We have over 6,000 hospitals in this country, and still most of them hide behind their attorney. Plenty of research studies out there show that when you embed full transparency, people actually sue less. There's plenty of documentation out there. So I'll end it with that because people need them. You know about the cases we've had in these past couple of years, right? There's now one in Florida, and there was one before of that. And by the way, our organization, PFPSUS, does tend to work with OIG, the Office of Inspector General, and we do file complaints when it's needed. So we try to bring that awareness that that particular hospital should embed full transparency and, you know, just go out and tell the truth, right? When they're still budgeting for medical malpractice, there's problem. Good push, good point to end on. Thank you so much for your time. This has been always a pleasure. 